Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. In this episode, I'm joined by Michelle Ruiz. Michelle is an entrepreneur, award-winning broadcast journalist, author, public speaker, and former Los Angeles news anchor for KNBC-TV. She is co-founder and CEO of BiasSync, a SaaS technology company that helps organizations identify and eliminate biases in the workplace, as well as the president and CEO of Ruiz Strategies, a communications firm that develops and executes content marketing strategies for businesses, government entities, and executives. In this conversation, we go deep on bias. And if the topic of bias makes you uncomfortable, I would encourage you to hang in there. The point that Michelle makes, and she makes it in the conversation, is everybody has biases. And we're not saying that anybody is a good person or bad person for whatever their biases are. It's just that we need to be aware that everybody has these biases and then make sure that they're not impacting our decision-making, our behavior, and that especially that they're not having a negative impact on other people. So this was a really fun conversation. We really cover the full gamut of bias here, talk about racial bias, gender bias, and and even political bias. We talk a lot at the end about political bias, which I find to be really interesting. And it makes sense with everything going on in culture and social media on the political spectrum right now. It's no surprise that that's filtering over into the workplace and impacting how our employees are working with each other. I learned a ton from this. I hope you do too. Here is Michelle Ruiz. Michelle, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you on today. So thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Obi. I so appreciate it. And so interesting how we how we met, right? We were introduced by someone that we both know. And then you we met via Zoom to just kind of, you know, for an introductory call. And you looked at me and you said, Wait, you, you look familiar. <laughs> Wait, yeah. are you the woman from <laughs> Bison? Yeah. And so we've actually done your corporate training at Lockton. Uh, we've done it company wide, and so and you were in some of the videos, and so and I knew from your background, as we'll cover here, that that you were on television, and but but that was in L.A. and I'm in Chicago, and I said, well, man, but she looks so familiar. And so <laughs> it was funny to put that together, and as we will talk about, a lot of the training that we did with you really did hit an emotional chord with me and and with a lot of my colleagues. I've talked about it with them. I've talked about it with my wife. And so Mm. interested to get into the training that you do, talk about bias, and then talk about even just what makes good corporate training. Because as we were talking about before I hit record here... (laughs) you know, Not all corporate training sticks with you. Mm -hmm. So I I think we've got a lot to cover today. Excellent. Excellent. So what is bias sync? And and just before you say that, because I realize as I've said this a few times, it's bias sync. Yes. One word in case anyone is sitting there being like, <laughs> what are they saying? It's too they're saying it too fast. It's bias sync. So what is bias sync? Yes. And I'll explain the those the significance of those two words in just a moment. So our purpose here at Bias Sync is to create more fair and respectful workplaces. And how do we do it? We do it by helping organizations mitigate the negative impact of unconscious bias as it plays out. And when we talk about bias, really talking about stereotypes, so how the impact of negative stereotypes can influence you know, outcomes for certain groups of people. So, so that's our purpose. That's why we exist. And as you mentioned that you have used it, it's been deployed there at Lockton. 
And basically, we use a science-based methodology to inform individuals, but also ultimately uh, help individuals change behavior when it's relevant. So we do that through a couple of different methodologies. The first is we are rooted in science and research. Everything we do is rooted in science and research. And so the pillars of our approach include not only training, and we'll talk about that as as you mentioned in just a moment, what makes for good training, how is our training different, but we know that training alone isn't enough to change behavior. So there's training, there's an awareness element of it, uh, awareness of how we might be defaulting to stereotypical thinking. Then there's the, what we know about behavioral psychology and behavioral prompts and tools and exercises and other support that we provide individuals to not only remember what they've learned, but also use, uh, use the tools in certain scenarios where bias tends to, you know, seep into the process in workplaces. But I was just going to say the, so bias sync. So how do we come up with bias sync? So it means that we all want, need to be in sync to reduce the impact of unconscious bias. So hence why SYNC, S-Y-N-C, is is part of the name. But I'll give you an interesting entrepreneurial spin to that. So my co-founder, Dan Gould, who's our chief technology officer and, and just a wizard, and heads up all of our the conversions of our science and tech and creates all kinds of software like a drop of a hat. And I went to him one day and I said, Dan, okay, so we need a name that's distinct. And we're obviously going to have the word bias in it because that's what we're about. And then the other word has to be one syllable and it has to end in a consonant (laughs) because I was paying attention to how it sounded. So he created a program that searched all the words in the dictionary to come up with those parameters. And then he narrowed it down to like, I don't know, it was a hundred. And we had walking meetings over using bias and those words and what it meant. And so anyway, just a quick little, an entrepreneurial story about that. (laughs) That's funny. I, so actually the, the backstory to this podcast was that I had everything written on a whiteboard. And I knew when I started this that I wanted it to be beneficial to the network, the work network and professional network that I have, which is predominantly business leaders and HR leaders. And then I also needed, wanted it to be interesting for myself. And so I put everything on from one category on one side and everything from the other category on the other side. And it, one was kind of business and one was kind of personal. And I was, I had a bunch of words up on the whiteboard and I was playing around with all different titles and everything like that. And it was like, well, it's about people and it's about business and it's about all this other stuff. And then like two days later, I woke up at four in the morning and and literally just sat up in bed. I actually sat up in bed and in my head went, people business. Every business is a people business and every person is in business. Like that's it. And it covers the whole whiteboard. I didn't have to pare anything out. I was like, this is perfect. So yeah, you never know how that, that inspiration uh, entitling is going to hit you. Before we get too far into this, and if we, you know, if there's anybody who's like maybe a little on edge and a little uncomfortable as we're talking a lot about bias, I think what I've seen in a lot of these conversations is that people get uncomfortable. They they get kind of emotional and defensive when we start talking about bias because there's there's an undertone that especially when you use the word stereotype, there's this undertone that like stereotypes are bad and people who stereotype are bad. And I just want the best for everybody. And I, I want a great workplace. And so I'm not bad. I'm not, you know, I don't have bias. I'm not stereotype. Like 
you know, this isn't our workplace. This isn't me. Like the hands go up, you know, you, you kind of, you can feel it a little bit and you see it, you know, in some cases pretty drastically. What do you say to those people who maybe like have their haunches up a little bit, you know, or maybe a little bit defensive when we start talking about stereotype or bias? Sure. So the first thing to understand is that Unfortunately, because of a lack of misunderstanding about really what is unconscious bias, because we're talking implicit bias or unconscious bias, you hear both those terms out in the in the world. Uh, there's a misunderstanding by some of what it really means. And unconscious bias or implicit bias, very simplistically, is our brain defaulting to certain types of thinking based on what we've been exposed to starting as early as our toddler years. And the most recent research shows that they believe that babies are actually even starting to exhibit preferences because biases are preferences even earlier than toddler years. And so not all biases, by the way, are bad. So, and what happens, and you know, there's some great books out there about unconscious bias and implicit bias, but what happens is our brains need to process millions and millions and millions of bits of information coming at us in a very short amount of time. Think seconds. So in order to process all these bits of information that are coming into our brain, we have to have mental shortcuts. And so our brain learns how to make mental shortcuts starting very early in our development. And uh, so our brain fills in, in order to, to have mental shortcuts, our brain fills in gaps in our thinking. And so what happens is, as it pertains to specifically implicit bias and stereotyping, because they're kind of, you know, it's, it's a basic way to say we inadvertently might stereotype about certain types of groups of people. So what happens is our brain fills in unconsciously information about certain types of people simply based on what we've been exposed to. So as an example, many of us are aware of the studies out there around our impression about people based just on the media we consume. And I come from a media background. Before I became an entrepreneur, I was a television news anchor and a reporter. Why does that matter? It matters because there are plenty of studies that show that in news programming, when you look at how blacks are portrayed versus whites are portrayed, there's much more uh, negative portrayals of black individuals, i.e. as criminals or uh, dishonest or whatever the case is than white individuals. So what happens when we're on the receiving end of that kind of media, and even if we just look at movies and film and drama and entertainment, it's not uncommon to see certain types of people portrayed certain ways, even people of the LGBTQIA plus community. So be, based on those exposure, uh, we start to develop stereotypes about individuals. And so uh, that's really what it is. And it's unfortunate that certain individuals think that having biases is, is a bad thing because the science is very clear. We all have them. We all have them. And, and by the way, when we talk about preferences, because that, that is what a bias is, you have a preference for or preference against, we might have a bias towards red sports cars versus, you know, other types of cars. That's not a bad bias, right? We might have, you know, so, so they're not always yeah, bad. You like modern homes instead there of There you go. So you That's like, exactly you know, just, right. Yeah. It's That's exactly right. So it's not, and by the way, 
the this ability for mental shortcuts and thinking quickly can actually save our lives in certain situations. So there's studies around that too. So all of this simply to say is having a bias or defaulting to stereotypical thinking is not a bad thing. We are not bad people. That's just the way the neurons in our brains form starting at a young age. But where it becomes unfortunate is as we become adults, we, we carry these implicit biases in our brain. Again, implicit meaning we don't know, we don't even realize they're there. And I'll give you a couple examples of how that plays out in the workplace. So where it becomes problematic in, in workplaces is that um, it is, no, the research is clear that biases do play a role in more uh, negative outcomes for certain types of groups of individuals and organizations. So when you look, for example, at a common stereotype around black people, a common stereotype in the workplace is black people are less professional than white people. So if we don't realize that we may be inadvertently, unconsciously, not even aware in our brains that we may have that stereotype, we may then be inadvertently making decisions about who gets opportunities, who gets promoted, who gets you know, the, the prime uh, contract opportunity or gets put in front of the prime, you know, client that helps them advance all these things. A common stereotype with women is, you know, women are not as great leaders. You know, women, uh, stereotypes are women are more nurturing, they're softer, they're supportive, they're, you know, that these are some of the traits that, you know, we have as, as it pertains to, to women. And, and if you think about when we think about how we view men as leaders, we use terms such as assertive, aggressive, decisive, and but yet most of us don't have a negative reaction to a man or a male leader being described that way. But you you think about those terms for a woman, a woman leader, and they can have negative connotations. By the way, even women can have those negative stereotypes about other women. So that's where so. In answer to your question, OB, so how do we how do we address that when it comes up when people have resistance? So the companies that we're selling to understand the role bias plays and the need to address it. And you know, we we typically sell to mid to, to enterprise clients. So they already understand the importance of addressing it. But where it does come up is with individuals going through the process. So we make sure that we give a lot of information about what is bias, what is it not. It's not a reflection on your character, on your values, on your morals, those kinds of things. It's simply a snapshot in your brain about how you might be inadvertently stereotyping. And then what's most important is knowing we all have them. What are our biases? And then how do we self-check when it matters in the workplace? Love that. There's a lot to unpack in there. One thing that I that I was thinking when you were saying that is there was a recent example that made national news where a black couple were selling their home and they had their white friends, like another couple who was white, come in with a bunch of their personal belongings. And they basically took everything out of the house that would indicate that a black couple owned the house. And they had gotten a quote on the house and they had gotten some offers for like $600,000 to start. And they got offers for like $900,000 when they whitewash the house. And it, you know, it's not like anybody walked in and went like, you know, oh, this is a white house, so I'm going to buy this. It was just like people just were like naturally valuing the house more. And it's just something that that happened in people's brains from their bot whatever their biases were. 
but it made national news only a few days ago. Yes, you're referencing that headline-making scenario. It was the appraisal. And this is a big problem in real estate, by the way. It's a huge problem. It's been documented over and over again. So when the appraiser came to appraise the house in order to prepare for sale, the appraiser obviously became aware that the owners were black and gave it an appraisal. And then the owners themselves knew that that was impossible. They were following, you know, what was going on in their neighborhood and they mark and they knew it was severely under appraised and undervalued. So they waited a few months. And to your point, they had friends come in and they removed all their personal pictures, but it also, it was, you know, didn't, it showed a, a white family, presumably living in the house. And the appraisal came in for an extraordinary uh, amount yeah. higher. And it had, I think it was 300,000. Yeah. And so that's that exactly. That's where biases. And I'm sure if you put the appraiser in front of you and you talk to them and you said, and I don't know if it's a male or female, but if you would say, why did you appraise the house so low? They would say, well, it wasn't bias. It was this, or it was that, or it was, you know, who knows? Again, because it happens unconsciously. These are these are not about bad people. So that's a perfect example of how you have detrimental outcomes to certain people of color when, when you don't realize that biases are at play. The other thing that I wanted to pull out of what you said before, and you said women do this to each other too. And that was, so one of the modules that we went through from Biosync that stood out for everybody who saw it, that we were all talking about was, and I hope I'm not giving away something. No, go right ahead. <laughs> it was, um, so it was interviews with young boys and girls of all different races. And they were having to, there was a black doll and a white doll on the table and they had to choose which doll represented certain words. And so they would say, you know, which one's pretty, which one's well-behaved, which one's bad. And you would see the little white children more often associate positive traits with the white doll and negative traits with the bad doll. The thing that crushed me and, and everybody else that I talked to was the little black girls who would sit down and they would choose the white doll over the black doll for positive attributes. And they would choose the black doll over the white doll for negative attributes. And you could see their parents watching them make these choices, associating the color of their skin with something less than. And I mean, it was heartbreaking. Just I, I would get chills and kind of get choked up just thinking about it. Like just absolutely heartbreaking to see that as young as somebody in a child. So can you, I, maybe I just gave away the whole story, but could you talk to the fact that like everybody is doing this and that it's out there and we're even people in these groups are doing it to themselves and to each other? Yes, Obi. And uh, that was a recreation of an experiment originally done in the 1940s called the doll test. And it's a seminal experiment that's taught as part of implicit bias training. And you're right. It's heartbreaking. And by the way, the results that we showed, and we use children of all different ethnicities. The original experiment was done with just black and white children. We used Hispanic, Asian, you know, mixed race. And the results are the same, that, that as exactly as you stated, OB, that they were associating more positive attributes towards the white doll versus the bad doll. 
And so that leads into what we also know about in-group, out-group bias. And you picked up on it when we when you mentioned the gender piece. And there, the science is clear that we sometimes have what's called in-group bias. We associate more negative attributes to people from our own group than we do to an outside group, which sometimes is a conundrum when people think about it because they think, again, back to the workplace, they think, let's just say they need they they're tracking data and they say we're having challenges with you know people of color promoting or advancing to higher levels in the organization oh let's put a person of color you know in a leadership position then there'll be this trickle down effect not realizing that the person of color or woman or a combination of because we're intersectionality we're intersectional may have their own biases towards their own group so that's what the doll test, one, one of the things that the, the doll test points out that our PhDs unpack later in the curriculum. So back to gender, as you mentioned, it is not uncommon for us to see that the data and analytics that we are able to provide to organization leaders show that there might be higher levels of gender bias amongst the women in the organization than the men. And when, when we do see those results, it's not an uncommon result. It just means it's an awareness to how to focus on their interventions and how to focus on deeper dive training and some other things. So it happens. It's very clear. It would almost seem like maybe it would be more well-rooted in th- their own class. Because I, like, I, I can think about a few conversations I've had like with extended family members talking about like a female political candidate and it's almost it it's almost like well i'm a woman and so i know like i'm not going to vote for this person because of these things and it's like well those are incredibly biased things like do you really like, as a woman you really feel like you're that way like are all women that way i don't know and so but it would seem like because you are in that group like maybe i know that group better is do you see that that it's actually harder to change the bias in the group that is biased against? So, so if I understand you correctly, you're asking: Is it harder to change or to move the needle when there's in-group bias than yes. out-group? Okay. I guess I didn't have the word. For no, that's okay. Bias, that's, yes, that's, that's exactly that, what I'm talking about. No worries. So, at the end of the day, I wouldn't say it's harder or less hard. What I would say is. And this kind of ties back to your earlier question to me, Obi, about when people express resistance. I'm not, you know, I'm not a bad person. I don't have stereotypes. I treat everybody the same, you know, all that kind of stuff. Generally, if you can appeal to people's desire to be good people, that overcomes resistance and also enables people to be more open-minded to wanting to know what to do to not inadvertently stereotype. Right. So it's not that we find it's harder. It's just insightful because here's what happens. A lot of organizations think, oh, we need more of X. So they put a person of X up there in that leadership position and they don't see the results that they, they, by the way, that's not enough. I'm not saying it's not a good thing to put a person of a certain demographic in a leadership position and you do lead by example, but you have to recognize that that is not enough to change the outcome in the organization. But it is important to understand that we do, we can, you know, have negative beliefs and biases towards people in our own group, especially, and by the way, when it's most shocking and therefore the most awareness occurs is when we consider ourselves ourselves as advocates 
for women or people of color or for members of the LGBTQIA plus community or for age or for disability. And then our bias assessment shows, wait, I might have a moderate to strong bias towards that you know group that I'm supposed to, I, I view myself as an advocate for. And so the bottom line is we all have them. It's not about whether it's harder, it's really about appealing to people's desire to be good people. And if they, if they, and most people do, of course, you know, they want to be good people. So they just need, once they're, once they come and become settled with that, then they're able to be open-minded to the actionable pieces. Okay. So what do I do in these scenarios? How do I make sure that bias isn't a part of these scenarios? So let's talk about what we do with this. Cause I want to be a good person. I I think a lot of people listening to this want to be good people. Yeah. And I know, and I've done some bias assessments and that kind of a thing. So I have a general sense of what some of my biases are and they're still hard to get rid of. So are we trying to get rid of our biases when it comes to gender, race, that kind of a thing, or, or are they always going to be there and we just need to manage them? Like, how should we think about this and how do we actually change it? Sure. So in the workplace, because Biosync, we're about mitigating the impact in the workplace, not the world at large, but certainly there are things that can translate to the world at large. Well, and you can't, I mean, you can, it's not like, oh, I'm biased, <laughs> at, I'm unbiased at work. And then I walk out the door. Right. There you go. Biased, right. But, exactly. You know. There you go. Or the reverse. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's the large, by the way, let's chat, chat in a minute about political bias. That's a big thing playing out in workplaces right now. So what happens is we don't purport to try and change people's levels of bias. It's very hard to change the way our brains are wired. And it takes an extraordinary amount of time focused on working on our brain. I'm not, it's not to say that you can't have changes in bias, your bias levels, but it's not, it's simply understanding that we have biases and the awareness piece is what are our biases, right? So I'm a woman of color. So do I have a stronger gender bias? Or do I have a stronger racial bias? Or do I have one that's more neutral? Or do I have a neutral bias in one, but have a bias in other, which is not uncommon, by the way, where you have a, where you, where if you have intersectionality, you have one of those biases is much stronger than another. And so the goal here is awareness. And with awareness, you use actionable techniques, tools, and other support to self-check in the moments when we know in a workplace bias seeps in that leads to inequity. So I kind of like to describe it similarly to if you, if let's just say you go through an assessment, I'm not saying this about you, OB, but just let's just say a person in general goes through a medical assessment and realizes, oh, okay, they have a propensity to develop diabetes. Okay. With that awareness, they then make choices and they use some tools to help them, you know, mitigate the realization that they may develop full on diabetes, right? So it's the awareness. And then what do you do to hopefully affect a better outcome? That's how we look at biases in the workplace. So we're not focused on trying to change people's levels. That's just not a practical exercise in the organization. And it's more about what are our biases and what do we do? Well, and I like what you said about paying attention to the moments in which having a bias would create a negative outcome for certain groups of people, like deciding who need, who gets to move on in an interview process or 
deciding pay increases, like those moments where a person is impacted by a decision or where groups of people are impacted by a decision, that's a key moment to say, all right, let me check my biases here. Am I only moving the the male name resumes forward? Am I not giving the women enough of an increase? You know, even even if I have justified, just gone through and justified all my salary increases, did it shake out in an unbiased way? And if so, I should probably go back and and double check my logic here. I, I like that as a good framework because you you can't be thinking about this all the time. We just don't have enough brain power. But but it is good to sort of identify in your job or in your scope. Where are those human interactions where those decisions would have a negative income or a negative outcome? And then let's pay attention to those. Yeah. And I can tell you where they typically happen. It's recruitment. So biases can seep into the recruitment piece. Then, of course, the hiring and the hiring, it's all all elements of hiring. Everything from who do you select to move forward to even salary negotiations to what happens once they're hired? What's their experience right in the organization? Retention is one, but also sponsorship and mentorship, opportunities, advancement. Certainly we've heard about compensation, even disciplinary scenarios. And so I'll give you an example of how gender bias can play out. And it lit- and it's little instances where bias seeps in that can have a huge negative impact. So there's research that shows, for example, that it's not uncommon if you have a, a man and a woman and you have a high profile opportunity or a client in front of you and it requires travel as an example. So a boss might inadvertently say, oh, and I'm just going to use, you know, stereotypical names, Mary and John. Okay. So, oh, Mary has young children. You know, this, this opportunity requires travel. She, you know, her family probably needs her. John, John can go and travel as much as I'm just going to give this opportunity to John. Now the boss may be thinking that they're being considerate, right? But here's what happens now. Fast forward a year, two years, three years down the road, who on paper looks better based on experience and what they've done? Presumably John, because John's been given more opportunities. So when there comes the time for a promotion or some other significant event in the in a person's career, theoretically, John looks better on paper. But if you look at it, John's had more opportunities than Mary has to be able to show her level of proficiency or skill set or what she's capable of doing, right? So th- it's those kinds of, that we don't even stop and think about. The research is very clear that women tend to have more family pictures in their workspace. Obviously, I know now we're in a bit of a hybrid situation, but men may have some, but not as much. But the studies have been done. When a woman has a lot of family photos in her workspace, that triggers these stereotypical thinking, these biases, which are, oh, she won't be able to put in as much time or she's not, you know, her kids are going to take her away from what we need her level of commitment or, you know, whatever the case is. And, and the research is clear that that's not true. <laughs> Women... Again, generally speaking, women work just as hard. They figure out, they multitask, they figure out how to, you know, do. Yes, they often can be the more primary caretakers, but they adapt and they adjust and they do have leadership skills, you know, and arguably some would say they're even better in some instances, right? So there's all kinds of little things that trigger, but these little things add up over time. The other thing that that makes me think that I want to maybe slot in here is you laid out a lot of good decision-making points. 
But there's a, there's a sneaky one that I think about too. And I was having this conversation with another podcast guest just last week, where if you're familiar with the study that was done with teachers and high achieving students versus low achieving students, where they had tested, researchers had tested a bunch of students, then they told the teachers which of those students were high achieving and which were average or low achieving. And then at the end of the year, they tested the students again. Lo and behold, the same group that they had told the teachers was high achieving scored better than the group that they told was average or low achieving. The rub was that what they had told the teachers was essentially a lie. They had just randomly chosen out of all the students a bunch to be high achievers and a bunch to be average. But because the teachers thought they were high achievers, they they gave them either extra attention or they maybe gave them the benefit of the doubt on some tests. You know, not again, totally unconscious. They didn't have any idea that they were doing this. But in the end, we, the researchers showed that it was better outcomes because they thought there were going to be better outcomes. And I think for managers, this is a good thing just to check yourself on the team, not all the time, but maybe to have at least one or two check-ins a year to say, all right, who's on my team? Where do I think they can go? What kind of belief do I have in these people? And then is that real or is that limiting this person? Because I, that's sort of a sneaky one that can get in there where you just say, well, I mean, that was them. They just, you know, they just didn't perform as high. And this person was a rock star. Well, lo and behold, we have a lot of white, white male rock stars and maybe not as many black female rock stars. And so I think that's maybe one that I'll offer up as a good checkpoint for anybody who's a manager leading other people. That's a great, a great point to make, OB. And, you know, what you're, you're addressing is our expectations, how bias seeps into our expectations and therefore impacts our decision making, who we give opportunities to, who we spend more time with, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, there's many variations of that type of study. It's it's certainly on the academic side, but also in the workplace. I heard someone, I was recently in a conversation with someone and she said to me, don't tell me that every leader in your organization has access to the CEO if the woman on your executive team isn't on the private plane with the CEO, right? And and the point being, not that every CEO has private planes, but the point being about access, right? And so, so access is a piece of that, access to opportunities, access to decision makers, access to influence. I mean, it's it's very, it's very nuanced. And so, yes, organizations should be, and leaders, people managers, should be aware of where it's impacting their decisions as, you know, as it pertains to the people that they're leading. But very sophisticated organizations are also thinking about those kinds of nuanced scenarios. So let's talk about political bias mm-hmm. in the workplace. <laughs> yes, so, indeed. And I know you had mentioned this when we were prepping, and you mentioned it earlier in the conversation. So how do you see political bias starting to show up in the work? Mm-hmm. So we did a study and the study revealed that when we asked individuals to rank which biases they were experiencing the most, what would you think the outcome would be? I would think it would be racial race and gender. Right. That's what we would think. Maybe, maybe sexual orientation. Yes. As a third political bias was number one. More so than racial bias, more so than gender bias. And and what does that mean? So like what can you define 
political bias as far as how it's showing up? Absolutely. So stereotypical thinking about certain about individuals and how they identify politically. So, so very sim- they're a Republican, therefore they must be A, B, and C. Correct. And so I'm going to judge them based on A, B, and C. Or they're a Democrat, and so they must be X, Y, Z. And Correct. So, yeah. They're okay. right. Exactly. And this shouldn't be shocking. Let's look at what's happening out in the world, right? So when we see the the country is very politically divided right now. In fact, I would argue in in many instances, the world is very politically divided. But certainly in the U.S., we've seen a lot of political division, more so than we've certainly seen in our lifetime. Those biases don't stop at the door. So what's happening in the workplace? There are assumptions being made about individuals if they've revealed their political affiliation and or there may be masking going on. Masking is when someone doesn't feel like they can should contribute or speak up or share ideas or share, you know, other things because they're concerned that they're going to be viewed a certain way. Masking is a ter- has a terrible impact in organizations. And masking is a direct result of expressions of bias or perceptions of, of bias being expressed. That you're going to be judged for offering your opinions, critiqued. Yeah. Exactly. That exactly. And so just like we're seeing out in the world, hostility amongst certain individuals and political affiliation, there's it's nuanced in the workplace. And then if you add to that the use of digital technology. So many of us who are parents are, are well aware of how the studies show that bullying is amplified through social media. Why? Because the the bullier doesn't have to confront the person face-to-face, eye-to-eye, they can say mean, terrible things using, you know, social media, and it reduces the the face-to-face piece of it. Guess what's happening? We're using Zoom and all these other technologies to interact, and and so the filters are coming off, (laughs) right? Yeah. Well, and anyone who says, I mean, I hear people say this all the time where they're like, oh, social media is affecting kids in this way. I'm like, no, 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 no. Social media is affecting people in this way. You just don't realize that it's happening to you too. You know, like I can feel it happen happening and and that it has happened to me, you know, a lot of the polls of social media and I've had to consciously try to fight against them. And I'm sure there are places where I'm I'm blind and unaware that it's been been pulling me, but you see it happen in people all the time, whether you're a kid or an adult. And so the whole bullying thing, you hear bullying, you think kid on the schoolyard, but this stuff happens among adults as well. Yes. And the more sophisticated term in the workplace is called microaggressions or microinvalidations. And microaggressions are exactly what, how, what the word sounds like. These small little aggressive situations or aggressions that people experience. And again, in many instances, the individuals who are inadvertently doing the microaggressions don't realize that they're doing it, right? They don't see it or they don't experience it a certain way. I mean, you know, it's one of the recent ones that's come to light or that's gotten some attention is around the hair bias, right? And so a microaggression would be, why why can't you just fix your hair a certain way, right? And this comes related to people who are African-American descent and that their hair texture is different and those kinds of things. And there's starting to be laws. You can't, 
you know, you can't discriminate on uh, or make certain rules for people with certain types of hair, right? But that would be, but simple comments could be a microaggression to someone. And if we're not of African-American descent and we haven't had that experience of how difficult it is, we may not realize that a comment or something we say or a request that we're making might be perceived as a microaggression. So I want to get back to the political bias for a second, but I want to talk about this microaggression thing as well, because this is another one where some haunches go up, people get a little defensive on the, the microaggressions, right? Where there's a there's a balance, it seems like, and I, I'm, you can tell me I'm totally wrong here. There it seems like there's got to be a balance between what is what is really some kind of an aggression or makes has a negative impact on somebody and a person being overly sensitive. And I, you know, you, you hear a lot, there's, I think this is where a lot of the clash happens is happening right now in, especially in the political spectrum where, and I just saw this, I saw a story about this or somebody was commenting about a podcast conference and their, the podcast conference was sponsored by, I think it was Newswire or News Daily or something where Ben Shapiro what is a partner and one of the founders of the business. Ben Shapiro is a conservative commentator, journalist, podcast host, and is a lot of people are on the left are not a fan of Ben Shapiro. Well, he was there at the conference because they were big sponsors and he was meeting fans and talking to people. But there were other people from the other side of the political aisle who were complaining that they felt threatened because he was there just because he was there having conversations with people. And the event actually apologized to guests because he was there. And I don't think from what I had heard, I don't think he did anything controversial. It was just the fact that he was there. And so I think there's a, to me, that seems over the line. Like that doesn't seem like a microaggression. That seems like us not being able to have this conversation. So Where's the line between this is actually having a negative impact on people and we all need to be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable to have these conversations? Yes, you you bring up some good points. And although I'm not aware of the specifics around that situation with Ben appearing, but you raise a very good point. And this ties back to my comments related to you. We may not realize that we are inflicting on someone else a micro-invalidation or micro-insult or micro-aggression because we ourselves have not had that experience. But the overarching issue is around inclusivity, right? And inclusivity, in or, in, inclusive, and you hear a lot of organization leaders talk about inclusivity. We need to be, we need to make more progress towards everybody feeling inclusive. And here by sync, we say everybody. That means white people, black people, you know, different ages. This is not about certain people feeling more inclusive. Yes, it is about certain people feeling more inclusive when they're feeling excluded, but we have to understand that inclusivity means everybody has a role at the table. And so- Even the people that you don't agree with. Even the people you don't agree with. Exactly, exactly. And so, well, again, I can't comment on that particular example that you gave because I just didn't see it and I wasn't aware of the facts. But what I can say is, is that- the organizations that focus on first recognizing that 
uncomfortableness is part of the process. A lot of organization leaders want to shy away. We don't want people to be uncomfortable. So therefore, we're not going to do anything, (laughs) right? You have that. Or we're not going to do X, Y, Z. But not doing X, Y, Z means the people over at ABC then feel excluded or not inclusive or, you know, those kinds of things. So one, it's around understanding that this work to to change outcomes for the better in organizations, because ultimately that's what we're talking about, to change outcomes and more equitable outcomes for everyone, that it does require getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's point number one. Point number two is focusing on skill sets around inclusivity. And that's also languaging. That's languaging. How do you communicate about it? Leaders, how are they communicating about what the processes, procedures, practices in the organization around inclusivity, those kinds of things. The third thing is, is yes, to the best of your ability, you know, every culture is different and those kinds of things. But just because someone is of a different political affiliation doesn't mean that they don't have something positive to contribute. Now, I'm, and, and I say that by saying, I'm avoiding the extremes and the fringes, right? We all know there are extremes and fringes and wackos on on the the fringes of my bias is neither of the extremes are the place you want to be. Exactly. That's my, I that's mean, a that's bias my there you go. I feel and pretty good. I, about. I, I, yeah. I'll join you right there, Obi. <laughs> I'm there too. Okay. So I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I think if you were to bring someone in. Uh, and I'm not saying this about Ben Shapiro and this 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 man. I, again, I know nothing about what happened there. Yeah, but, I was just using that sure. as, as an example of sure. Of but if you brought someone in who is on the record of having made racist statements or you know those kinds of uh, highly offensive, okay, I, I think you definitely want to think about whether or not you really do want to bring that person into an event or or uh, participate in your event. But there is room and there is, if you have what's called facilitated conversations with experts, and that's some of the work that we also do here at Bicing because it's come up and facilitated conversations are kind of setting the ground rules for an informative conversation where people can share their perspectives, their beliefs, their viewpoints, their ideas, their feedback with some guardrails, right? And so you were kind of saying, is it possible that some instances, some of us or some people are becoming too sensitive? Sure, possibly, but that might be around other things too. It's around setting the guardrails, communicating, understanding some of this work is uncomfortable, getting some guidance on how to set those guardrails and and reinforcing what inclusivity really means. And if we tend to tilt one way versus the other, at some point there needs to be a bit of correction, so to speak, so that everybody does feel like they have an opportunity to be in an inclusive organization. Yeah. And I like that last part of what you just said, which is like, if you are always feeling offended, you should probably look at your own viewpoints and see if you need to maybe grow a thicker skin or rethink the way that these people that you're interpreting the communication. On the flip side, if you're always one who's saying, well, they're just you know, they're reading it wrong. Or, you know, if you're just always dismissive, you probably need to take a good look in the mirror and realize that some of what you're doing at least is having a negative impact. So it's like, I think anybody who falls into the always category, that's probably a good reference point to stop and check yourself and say, okay, where's, where's the growth moment for me? Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we assess for him by sync is open-mindedness. Why do we assess for that? 
as part of helping people understand more about themselves. Because the more open-minded we are, the more inclusive we tend to be. And also the more we can, with the right guidance and tools and education, be influential and equitable outcomes. So open-mindedness, you can actually teach people in organizations how to show up with more open-mindedness and more cognitive empathy to mitigate the impact of bias and microaggressions and all those kinds of things. And that's really important as, as part of this. So you're addressing being trying to be as open-minded as possible, right? We all have our we all have our thresholds, but but recognizing if we're on the always extreme or the never extreme, that there might be some opportunities for some self-awareness there. There might be some more nuance to life that we need to be paying attention to. (laughs) Indeed. So any other comments about what organizations can be doing to maybe not eliminate political bias in the workplace, but to at least help either facilitate conversations or facilitate better collaboration so that that's not having such a detrimental impact? Yes. So, you know, we've been taught Many of us don't talk about religion and don't talk about politics. Guess what's being talked about? Religion and politics right now, right? Everywhere, everywhere. So we cannot assume that it's not not happening in the workplace. It is happening in the workplace. The question is, how, how attuned are we? And more importantly to it, and more importantly, is it creating issues? And so I would say, you know, with Biasync, what we do is one, we help organizations start with the baseline of where they're at. Where are they in terms of what is the state of the state in your organization look like, no matter how many locations, no matter how number of employees, whatever. So through the deployment of Biasync, we're looking at data and analytics to give you a state of the state. How strong are the biases? Where are they the strongest amongst which role, function, geography, plant, you know, et cetera. Again, anonymized, but on a, think of it like a heat map. You can't change what you don't measure. That's piece number one. Piece number two then is deploying not only unconscious bias training, but remember I talked to you about the behavioral change approach. It's also giving people uh, the behavioral prompts and the tools and tactics and things they need to self-check. And we cover it all. We cover from, you know, race, gender, LGBTQ, cultural, you know, race, uh, pardon me, biases towards people of different cultures and coming up next to some of these other areas. And we give people tools to be more self-aware and self-check. We also, by the way, give leaders tools and and support on the same track as the individual employees so that they can not only reinforce what the the lessons are and the learning outcomes, but also how do they model it? How do they demonstrate it? How do they have conversations around things that come up? And then we also, by the way, have a whole five-stage inclusivity roadmap to help organizations with checklists. It's a hundred-page Bible. And part of that is also related to how do you handle the conversations around religion and, and politics and all those things? Because whether it's about race or religion or politics or gender or LGBTQIA plus or something else, the framework is the same and the objective is the same. How do you create an inclusive organization and allow for people to be able to express their ideas, 
their thoughts, their experiences in a constructive way to ultimately lead to a more inclusive organization with with better outcomes. And I'm not just talking about better outcomes for individuals, but better business outcomes, right? Because we know the stats are there. The more diverse and inclusive, not just diverse, but inclusive organizations, the higher they are in terms of profitability, innovation, and, you know, all the key business metrics that we all look at as business leaders. And to your point, I mean, conceptually, why wouldn't we want everyone to feel great and do great? Uh, Exactly. That's exactly right. So Michelle, couple sort of maybe not rapid fire, but a couple of final questions here as we wrap up. When it comes to all this work, what are you sick of talking about? Me personally? Yeah. What are you sick of talking about when it comes to any bias or any of this type of work? I can't say I'm sick if if anything I'm talking more and more and more about it. <laughs> Is there anything that you hear people continually getting wrong? Are there any like misconceptions or errors that you see people making that you're like, all right, I just wish we could wipe these out? Well, as a person, I'm not talking about as the leader, uh, the founder of Biasing. As a person, I I still get very um, frustrated when I see gender bias play out in particular, not just in organizations, obviously that's the work that we do, but also just out in the world and politically. You know, you kind of addressed a little bit when you were talking about the conversations you have with family members and friends and those kinds of things and women talking about women. I mean, I, because one, I'm a former journalist, I'm attuned from that lens. And then secondly, because of the work that we're doing, I see it play out so much in politics and, and, and how we view potential leaders and leaders and it's to our own detriment. So as a person, I, I, I get really mad, <laughs> I get frustrated. Uh, and then I think back, you know what? I'm doing my part with biasing. We're changing outcomes for people in the workplace. And so that kind of helps relieve that. <laughs> but there's a lot of work to do there, by the way, amongst journalists too, and, and news organizations too. It's not just individuals, but. Yeah, that's a whole rabbit hole. We're we'll for yes. another time. When it comes to this work, I know you said you're talking more and more about it. What are you most excited to be talking about? Mm, I'm most excited about the growing awareness that what how bias plays into the negative outcomes for people and the de- growing desire to want to address it. Despite all the chatter that we hear here and there and the headline making, you know, stuff that appears and laws that, you know, some states are trying to pass and all that. If you just look at the sheer numbers of what's happening, there's a revolution going on. Meaning when I say revolution, what I'm talking about is awareness about how we do need to address bias in, in workplaces. And ultimately that we do want to strive so that everyone has more equitable outcomes. I would say that the country is shifting that way, despite all the stuff that you hear. Yeah. Well, and I I hope that this is that it becomes something that becomes part of how organizations make decisions because this isn't there's no arrival point with this stuff it's not like great we're all unbiased now it's that we all have to factor this into all of our decisions all of the time not that we need to be bogged down and slowed down by this work but that we just need to be aware and we always sort of need to be looking through the filter to make sure that our behavior is where we want it to be. Absolutely. 
So this last question might seem a little random, but it is it's one that I ask all of my guests. And you've you've been a reporter, you've reported on business, you're an entrepreneur, you've founded a business, you consult with other businesses, helping them on these issues. What in your mind is the purpose of business? The purpose of business for me is to improve the economic well-being of not only our employees, our stakeholders, our communities, and our country. That was clean. I like that. That was a great answer. (laughs) That was great. Michelle, thank you for coming on the show. Anything else that you would like to share with the audience, ask of the audience, we will post all of the links where people can find BiasSync and info on you and all of that, everything we've talked about in the show notes. But any final comments that you want to make around the topics we're talking about here? Yeah. You know, you hit it and I I think it's worth reemphasizing is one, we do need to be ready to lean into the uncomfortable to do this work and change outcomes in organizations. That's really important. And the second piece is around whatever you're looking at as an organization leader, focus on what's sustainable and what really changes behavior. Because a lot of organizations think they're, they're going to see change by only addressing it with training and training, there is a role for training. Training is really important, but training alone, the research is extremely clear. Training alone does not change behavior because the expression of implicit bias is very contextual. And there are a lot of triggers that happen. So I would say if you're really serious about changing outcomes in organizations, focus on sustainable approaches and not these one-off type solutions. And to your point, I think it's really easy to listen to a conversation like this, especially if you've gotten all the way to the end here with us and say, oh, I can see that needs to change in this department or that person needs to change or, and it, it can be very external. I think the, for the best starting point is to realize that we all have to change no matter how much work we've done. It still starts with catching our own thoughts, catching our own behaviors, starting with ourselves and then helping resonate that out with the rest of the people that we come into contact with. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, this was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. These conversations always help me get my head around these topics because they can be can be a little messy. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.